What would it take to arouse your life, to experience more connection, more pleasure, more realness, in and outside of the bedroom? I'm August McLaughlin, and this is Girl Boner Radio. Does sex for you ever feel stressful or like a chore? Does the thought of sex bring more of a sense of pressure than pleasure? Or would you just like to have more fun in the bedroom? We're going to explore all of this today, and I'm so thankful that you're listening. If you enjoy what you hear, please hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to never miss an episode. And for more Girl Boner fun, visit augustmclaughlin.com or girlboner.org, where you can sign up for occasional updates by email. Now I'm so pleased to welcome Jessa Zimmerman to the show. Jessa Zimmerman is a certified sex therapist and couples counselor. She specializes in helping couples who have a good relationship, but who are avoiding sex because it's become stressful, negative, disappointing, or pressured. She educates, coaches, and supports people as they go through her nine-phase experiential process that allows them real-world practice in changing their relationship and their sex life. She's the author of Sex Without Stress, the host of the Better Sex Podcast, and is a regularly featured expert in the media, including Refinery29, Business Insider, Mind Body Green, and Marriage.com. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm curious what you learned about sex and sexuality growing up. What were the first messages you remember receiving? Well, I actually grew up in a pretty sex-positive household, so my parents were quite open about sex. Um, my mom actually worked for uh, – it was an independent agency, sort of like a Planned Parenthood, that did birth control uh, and health exams and stuff like that. And she did the education outreach. So she'd go to schools and do these sex ed talks, and she'd leave her basket of – you know. Uh, goodies and condoms and bananas well condoms and bananas and yet models of things you know around the house all the time so so it was just normalized totally normalized and so even when you were five six years old you could ask questions it was just like not a thing it was not a thing but i do remember i was probably maybe i was eight when i asked the question you know where do babies come from or whatever and my mom started to launch into this whole thing that started with menstruation and you know and we're glazing over a little bit, me and my sister. Like, what does this have to do right, with Right, so it? my mom, my dad walked in, and he's like, no, no, no. This is what happens. The guy puts his penis and the <laughs> vagina and their sperm. And, and so he told us this whole thing. And then I remember being upstairs with my sister and these two um, friends of the family, these two boys are about our age, having this whole conversation about did they make this up? This could not possibly be true. But how could they make it up, right? Like, this, why would anybody do this? It sounds so, way wilder than Santa Claus, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, like, exactly. Wait, so blood and penis in the what? Like, right. why would you do this? And you're thinking, how could that fit there? And, yeah. and do you just stand there? And Yeah, there's so many questions around yeah, that. Yeah. Right, so we had this whole debate and wow. finally decided that it must be true. <laughs> and then did you have sex ed in school, too? Uh, yeah, I did. And it was, you know, like so much of sex ed, it was about how do you not get pregnant or not get sick? Right. Mm-hmm. Or basic, you know, I guess the basic mechanics of heterosexual penetrative sex. Right. Nothing else. Yeah. And you probably already knew more than that by then. So I think I did. Yeah. Just yeah. like my kids now. <laughs> At what so. point did you decide to pursue this therapy work you're doing in, in sex as a topic? Well, the, it came out of my own divorce, actually. So I had been a stay at home mom for years and years and getting divorced had to figure out, you know, what am I going to do? Uh, and I decided to be a therapist because so many people 
I, I don't know. They always told me I was easy to talk to and I was boundaried and grounded and, you know, I would be the person people would talk to. Um, so I went to get my master's to do that. I knew I wanted to focus on couples work already. And really early on in that training, a sex therapist was there teaching. And she said that she considered most of her work to be about grief and loss. And there was something about that that just hit me, like viscerally mm. in the gut, you know. People are suffering if their sex life isn't working. So it's, you know, one of those moments. It's, I'm, this yeah. is what I'm going to do. Wow. And you really focus on helping people who have these good relationships, which I think is really common. And they're like, yeah. but. And it's such a often taboo subject for many people. It's hard to talk about. And the idea that sex is about pleasure and yet you're feeling all this, like, angst around it. Yeah. When did you decide that that would be kind of your – one of your focus points? Uh, I guess just through my work with clients. You know, it's something I see in my practice so frequently. I mean, even just focused on sex therapy, it's incredibly diverse what I do. But there was this recurring theme of people that feel really broken and they're afraid. You know, they're worried that something's wrong with them or does this mean I'm with the wrong person? You know, and they, they're awake with worry at 4 a.m., you know, freaking out about this. And But it's very, very common to struggle with sex because so many things happen in our life. You know, obstacles come up. So I, I just developed this sort of soft spot for these couples that are, you know, have so much goodwill and friendship and yet are so afraid because sex isn't working. Mm, yeah. And I've heard – I don't remember the exact quote, but when – it's like when sex is – not a problem. It's not a big part of the relationship. It's just like, oh, sex, and we eat, and we sleep. And right, we, right, right. You know? But if it is a problem, it's like this monster in the room that no one talks about. Yeah, totally. It feels like, you know, 80% of the value of your relationship. But if it's working, it feels like 20, you know? Yeah. yeah. What is the sexual avoidance cycle? Well, I mean, it's a term I made up <laughs> to describe what happens, what I see happen with people. So it starts when, when sex doesn't work the way you expect it to work. You know, and if that happens every once in a while, it's not that big a deal. But if it's a recurring problem, it starts to feel like something's really, really wrong. So if people have sexual dysfunction, if they're struggling with sexual desire or discrepancy like that, I mean, so many reasons sex can start to feel difficult or challenging or, you know, even broken, right? And then it's human nature when things uh, make us feel bad to avoid that. You know, so we start avoiding having sex or talking about it. It starts to be this elephant in the room, you know, like you were saying before. But the problem is when we avoid something, it doesn't go away. <laughs> you know, it doesn't get easier. The pressure builds. So all of a sudden there's this huge pressure in the relationship about, oh, we're not having sex and we should. Or I know my partner wants to be having sex and I feel really bad about that. Mm. And there's pressure if they do have sex. All of a sudden, it's like, wow, we don't do this very often, so this time better be okay, right? There's so much more pressure on that one encounter, which then, of course, sets you up to probably not have a very good time. What are some of the most common kind of underlying issues that where this starts? Because the the lower desire might stem, right, from the avoidance, right? Like it's not going how they want it to go. What are some of the most common complaints that people start with? They come to you and they say, this is the problem. Um, I would say there's there's two basic categories of things. So one of them is sexual dysfunction. So something isn't working physically the way they want it to be working. And so, you know, whether we're talking about erectile dysfunction or pain or um, premature ejaculation or lack of orgasm, whatever it is, right, that can start to to cause um, anxiety around sex and avoidance. But the the more common one in my practice is, you know, the bodies are working okay, but their sex life still isn't. 
And most of that is around desire discrepancy. So they're struggling. I mean, in every relationship, somebody wants more sex than the other person. That's not broken or a problem. But people don't usually deal with that very well. Mm. So if they get caught in the problems of that, that starts to amplify the stress around sex. Or if people have what I call um, reactive sex drive. So there's proactive drive where, you know, you think about sex, you maybe get spontaneously interested, you fantasize, what you know, you'd like to make this happen. That's what we think of as sex drive or libido. But lots of people have what I call reactive drive. So they're starting from zero. They may not think about sex at all. They feel like they don't have libido. You know, that's what they'll say is I have no sex drive. But if they got going, if things were good, they took the time they needed, they got the touch they needed, they start to respond, their body starts to get aroused. It's like, now I'd like sex. Mm -hmm. You know, people don't understand that that's normal. Yeah. And, and they it, haven't, you know, they haven't accommodated that. Yeah, yeah. And isn't it also normal, too, to sometimes be reactive and sometimes? Oh, not? yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not black and white yeah. or binary. It's it's you can certainly be in the middle. You can switch in your life. I think we all get a little more reactive as we get older. And certainly if you're stressed or what's, you know, if Lacking there's sleep. Yeah, whatever it is. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it's not like it's your one or the other. But yeah. if you have a lot of reactive desire uh, you have to understand that that's normal and you have to accommodate that. Both people need to understand that's not broken. Because then you have to desire it to desire, right? Yeah, you have to, you have to start on purpose. You know, for, like what I say, start at zero. Mm. And what do you do to get the engine to turn over? And not that it necessarily will all the time either. So that yeah. has to be okay. But sort of like what's that on-ramp? Yes. Know? And then even I think giving ourselves permission. Some people maybe because of sexual shame or messaging they've received – they haven't felt like they're supposed to get turned on yeah, yeah. or or they're kind of the quote-unquote good girl or whatever your identity is, but just feeling like you, it's it's somehow bad if you have a desire. So there's all these layers at times. What is the first step in the awareness process? Because I bet a lot of people have no idea what the what actually is going on. Yeah, I mean, I start with, um, in the book at least, the whole problem starts with our expectations because it's we think sex isn't working, but we're not right <laughs> about that. You can't actually fail at sex. So I really challenge the most common myths that people have about how sex works and try to change this mindset that sex is not out about any particular act. You know, it's just about finding ways to engage and share pleasure and connection with your partner. Sex can't not work. Because sex is supposed to be awkward sometimes, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's not like – do you feel like porn and kind of – it's kind of the gap between both not learning very much and then maybe only having access to porn or maybe yeah. that's what you've seen the most, that there's this performative feeling that people feel like my sex life is good if I'm – if we're spontaneously orgasming together and I'm squirting or, you know, like right, all these right. like images they see. Yeah, it's a huge part of the problem of where we're getting expectations for sex because, it you know, porn is not sex ed, right? Porn isn't even sex. It's, it's fantasy or entertainment. I mean, it's probably a lot of things, but in no way does it represent, you know, real sex. I mean, I guess there's small slivers of... There's sexual things happening, but yeah, it's like yeah. it's for the camera. So, for example, how can you really have clitoral stim with... I mean, the camera can't see that. Yeah, right, right. It's, <laughs> so, yeah, it's yeah. scripted and it's exaggerated yeah. and there's camera angles and there's sort of... I actually call it a caricature of sex because porn tends to be divided up into, you know, erotic uh, lanes, you know, yeah. which are emphasizing something because that's erotic to people, but it's sort of 
out of proportion. So Yeah, yeah. And if you just sort of randomly search porn looking for something, which makes sense. I mean, I'm glad that it's accessible both for entertainment, but also people need something because yeah, they're not yeah. getting a lot. Uh, but if you're only watching like mainstream, for example, it might show certain things. I actually had a listener write in once and tell me this story that I found pretty amusing and because everything turned out well. But she and her partner both were engaging in anal sex and neither one of them really enjoyed it. And it took one of them saying, oh, my gosh, like all this anxiety, I have to say this, like, oh, my gosh. And it turned out that neither one was neither one of them was really I mean, they were OK with it, but they were just kind of like, really? But they had this feeling like they should be doing yeah, this thing, it's what right? They kept yeah. seeing. It's what they were watching. And so they thought they assumed that was what the desire was. Yeah. Yeah. So porn gives you, all, you know, all these bad ideas about what do people look like? How do they perform? What do people want to do? I mean, nothing's wrong with anything you see in porn, but it doesn't mean that's what everybody wants. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah it's a huge place for misinformation. Yeah, yeah. Are you familiar with Erica Lust? No. I really appreciate her work because she d creates porn that's much more sensory mm. and slower. And some of it's, like, really hardcore stuff, but you actually get more of a sensory experience. Huh. And, uh, and it's really beautifully shot and more types of, like, ages and bodies. and all. I, We need more of that. Yeah, yeah, we do. We really do. And or, or we need discernment when we're consuming porn, when we're going to view it, to understand that, okay, it's appealing to our eroticism, and that's powerful stimulant, you know, and it's not real. Mm, and it's not yeah. complete. It's just one little aspect. So I think if we can, if we can you know, have that thought in our mind when we're seeing it, it doesn't do as much damage. What can people do who are experiencing or dealing with erectile dysfunction within a relationship? I imagine it brings up a lot of mixed feelings for both partners if it's yeah. something that they were really used to enjoying certain kinds of penetration. Right, right. Well, I mean, there's sort of two tracks anytime there's sexual dysfunction. So on the one hand, people should always get a medical evaluation because there can be medical conditions that are at play uh, that you would want to treat <laughs> and deal with, you know. But, uh, but if, if there is no physical treatment for that, or if that's not what's going on, so much of it is about changing our expectations about what sex is. So I'll have people like, forget about an erection or penetrative sex. How are you going to expand what you can do, how you can find pleasure, enjoy, and connection with each other? And really explore that so that sex, you know, instead of the walls sort of coming in on you, you've got a lot more room to play. Mm. So it's really about redefining what sex is and giving yourself permission to have those experiences. And then if the ED is psychological, out of stress and anxiety, sometimes that's enough to sort of clear it up. Ah, uh, taking you know? the pressure off. Yeah. Because people do. They feel so much pressure yeah. around being sexual in a certain way, being turned on at certain times. Right. And, and talking about it, it's interesting to me how many people struggle with having a conversation about sex with the person they're engaging in it with. Yeah, it's true. It's yeah. true. And with something like ED, you know, both people tend to have um, – the person whose penis isn't working like they think you want it to thinks it's supposed to. They think they're, you know, tend to think they're broken or inadequate or there's a shame or, you know, and the other person might feel it's a statement about how attractive they are. You know, like both people take it super personally instead of, wait, it's just a body part that isn't quite working the way we want it to. So let's play with the other body parts. Yeah. Or play with them differently. Totally. Because you know? yeah. certainly I grew up with the what I did know about sex had so much to do with the penis. Like penis, yeah. vagina, it's like almost the rest of the body doesn't really exist. Yeah. And, and like when you start to actually explore that there's so many other ways to experience pleasure, it's actually really empowering. Yeah, it is. It's, it's so freeing. Like this burden can come off if people can wrap their mind around this. 
So I talk about sex being like going to the playground. So it, you know, it's the outing that counts, not what you do once you get there. You just go to the playground. You play with what you want to when you're there. You get inspired for the next thing. You know, that nothing says you have to go down the slide. You stay as long as you want to stay. You go home. It's like the whole the whole thing's a win. You can't fail. I just love that. You can't fail at it. Yeah. That, that's such an important message. I wish we heard that yeah. more for sure. For a couple that's experiencing libido differences pretty chronically, not not just occasionally, not sometimes it's one person, the other, but like a pretty dramatic yeah. divide. What are some of the important steps that you can take? Obviously, working with a sex therapist is really important yeah. if you can. Yeah, that can be really helpful. You need to understand that that discrepancy exists all the time, right? I mean, it, it's always there. Uh, sometimes it's more extreme than other times. To me, it's about starting with taking the lower desire partner and trying to understand why that makes sense. Typically, at least by the time they're coming into therapy, they have some really good reasons for being less interested in sex. So besides just whatever natural libido they would have, there can be relationship issues, there can be power dynamics, uh, there can be stuff about the actual sex they're having that's not working as well for them or they need something different. It can be about the meaning of sex. You know, if I'm supposed to want sex so that you feel good about yourself as a lover, sex is not so engaging over time, right? If I'm just, <laughs> I'm just doing this to make you feel good about yourself. So we have to take apart all those reasons that really make sense and try to, you know, change those if that's what's happening. Then usually there's a part about that whole reactive desire piece. Often the person with less desire has more reactive desire. So we have to create the space and the opportunity to explore what might help them get the engine to turn over, you know, because a lot of people say no to sex because, oh, I'm not feeling it right now. So no. And they don't realize, oh, wait, we could go to the playground. We could mess around. We could see what happens. Yeah. And it'll be fine either way. I'll either end up wanting sex. Great. Or I won't. And we will have just had fun playing. <laughs> yeah, that's such a good point. So often I hear from people who, when they're talking about libido differences, they say, oh, my partner's been very kind about it. Or they're not complaining, but it's almost always almost every time there's so much shame and pressure on themselves. Yeah. They're like, they've never said anything about this, but I feel like they're going to divorce me. You know, like it's really builds up. Yeah. Both. It's not a hundred percent, but often both people come into couples counseling with me and they both think something's wrong with the lower desire partner. They're the identified patient, ah. you know, as if more desire is somehow right like or health. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's not true. There's no right amount of desire. And it's a shame when people come in and they pathologize each other, you know, like, what's wrong with you? You don't have a natural sex drive, you know. What's and why do you want sex so much? Yeah. And then what's <laughs> wrong with you that all you think about is sex? So, yeah, you know, often by uh, the time they get in therapy, that kind of dialogue is going on. There's got to be a lot of layers under that one. Yeah. Yeah. And it probably goes really deep. Yeah. But trying to honor both people's desire for where it's at and then help them collaborate. You know, ultimately, they want to collaborate on a sex life that's going to be really engaging for both of them. Of course. Yeah. Do you find that when people come in and there is that discrepancy, the lower desire person, are do they tend to also avoid masturbating? Um, sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes they've got, you know, a low enough drive that they're not even masturbating. But sometimes it's it, sometimes it surprises a partner to hear this, that they are masturbating. They because do have, I love sex by myself. Well, yeah, that's easier. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a, sort of apples and oranges, right? right but they right. have a drive, but they're they're struggling to either bring that to their partner or get right. what they need or that, you know, there's nothing wrong with masturbating anyway. Right. Plenty of people with a good sex life masturbate. So. Yeah. And so many people think that there's that idea like masturbations for single lonely people no 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 yeah. totally different experience and par partnered sex yeah. anyway so, and when yeah. you're 
having sex with yourself, you know what to do. It's very easy. You can come very quickly if you want to. And so I imagine that the pressure that could build from this whole scenario can, can sort of create this snowball that keeps getting bigger where it's like, I don't I don't experience orgasm quickly with my partner. Yeah. So therefore, there's something wrong with that. Right, right, yeah. right. And we can start to use, <clears throat> well, masturbation is totally normal and it has a place within a healthy relationship. We can use it as avoidance. So it's possible to start retreating into solo sex, right, and, and avoiding taking care of your intimate relationship with your partner. That's a good point. So at that point, yeah. I think it becomes a little, you know, we have to examine that, right? The mm -hmm. better better solution, I think, is to work with your partner to get what you need. Yeah, that's a really good point. Because if you get into the pattern of, we've had a couple of questions about, is my vibrator addictive? And, and we've talked about how, well, not like traditionally, not like, right. but if you're so used to sex feeling one way. And for me, I feel like vibrators are so intense that you might not feel the full body arousal. So it's kind of good to take time and, you know, or to bring the toy into the bedroom to right. find that couples sometimes struggle with feeling comfortable doing the things that they would do with themselves, like, say, a toy, you know, bringing that in with the, with the partner. Yeah, I mean, a big part of sex therapy is trying to facilitate those conversations, right? Like when you were mentioning masturbation, we have an instant loop when we masturbate between how it feels, what we want it to feel like, and what we do, right? And it's all going at the speed of synapses. And so a lot of what I'm trying to do with couples is give them the opportunity to build that same sort of flow between two people. So my belief is that each person is responsible for their own pleasure. So you enlist your partner, but it's really up to you, which means you have to, first of all, know what you want and be, you know, find a way to communicate that. So, you know, trying to get that flow between two people is helpful. I love that notion of, which I totally believe that, you know, you're responsible for your own pleasure because I imagine in that scenario where people come in almost like adversaries where it's like we're a team but in this one scenario, <laughs> right. it's like, you know, you're thinking so much about what the other person wants. And I think we've all experienced that. Like it's a it's a common thing to – and it's good to care about what a partner feels. But when you're so focused on what the other person is thinking, feeling, are they enjoying it? Am I taking too long? Do I smell weird? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Am I doing what they need? I mean, you know, we have this belief sometimes that my partner should just know what I want and be able to produce this thing, <laughs> and it's their fault if they can't. Yeah. You know, and that's a lot of pressure on you as a partner about am I doing what they need? Why I'm trying to follow what they you know want, and I don't know, and, it you know, it's so burdensome. Yeah, it's so true. What's one of the most common myths that you hear from couples who come in or individuals that really stands in the way of desire or orgasm? Um, I, I mean, I think the, the myth, the biggest one is this idea that we should have spontaneous desire for sex. Like on so, TV. Right. So making this room <laughs> for a reactive desire and, and having yeah. to start from, getting to start from zero. Mm. Um, and that there's no amount of desire that's right or wrong. Um, and then I think this idea that somehow we're all ready to go or sex is reliable, <laughs> you know, that somehow if we do the right stuff, we'll always have an orgasm or it's always going to work, whatever that means for you. I mean, it just isn't true. Yeah. What about somebody who's never experienced an orgasm? What's one of the first steps they should take? Well, generally uh, exploring their own body and then masturbation. You know, most people will discover an orgasm uh, alone first and then share it with a partner. Uh, that's not 100% true. I've definitely mm -hmm. worked with people who are uncomfortable enough with that that they'd rather do this ex exploration with a partner. But they've really got to just, you know, map their whole body and pleasure system and what do they respond to. And there's resources like OMGS or whatever to learn more about how people find pleasure. 
um, and start to experiment with it. I mean, the term, you know, it used to be anorgasmia, which means lack of orgasm. Right. But really, as sex therapists, we just think of pre-orgasmic. They just haven't had an orgasm yet. Oh, I love yet. that. It's so much more positive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, if you want to experience orgasm, it shouldn't be your orgasm list. Right. You just haven't discovered it yet. Now, there something. are sometimes there are medications or conditions that are going to prevent somebody from getting there. So it's not it's not like 100% of people will discover orgasm. But there's, you know, as wonderful as those are, there's still so much pleasure that we can share with a partner, even without that. Yeah. Yeah. It's so true. It must be really gratifying when people have turning points. Yeah. And I think when people are struggling with sex, it, it feels very dark. Yeah, it does. Could you speak to the rewards and the payoff from from prioritizing this work? Yeah, I mean what I you know, what I hear from clients when they come in, it is so dark and heavy and pressured, right? They really are afraid they're broken or they're with the wrong person. And that's devastating when you love your partner. You know, and they've been so afraid to talk about it or bring it up. They've been avoiding this for however long they've been avoiding it, right? And something makes them finally come in. And then usually it doesn't take that long to adopt some of these ideas and realize, wait, we've put all this pressure on ourselves in ways that we don't have to. And then this burden comes off, you know, and it's like, oh, my gosh, first of all, we're okay. And this can be playful again. This can be light. It doesn't have to. Yeah. 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 And it's I mean, it's really night and day. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's why I do this work. I just love it. That's so interesting you said that because I interviewed Pam Costa Mm -hmm. for my book. And she talked about going in to see a sex I think it was a sex coach initially because of her low desire and her husband um, had a higher desire. And she had such a freeing moment she talked about where the therapist said, do you want to have sex? And it sounded like such a basic question. She said, nobody – like no one ever really – gave me a choice yeah she was like i was supposed to meet prince charming and not have a sexuality until then and then once i meet that person everything's like amazing right right magically on a dime yeah Yeah. and then life happens and and you realize that all the messaging you absorbed or whatever the causes are for you but in her case learning that this is the way sex is supposed to be and you know very it's a very kind of heteronormative like men are sexual men are women are not kind right, of thing right. and um, for her to have that permission already gave her this freedom and she realized yes i really do but it was it was like you could never want sex you could occasionally like yeah. permission yeah. permission to just be who you are without any sort of pressure Yeah. And you're talking about somebody who maybe from the beginning sort of struggled with her place of her sexuality. And then there are all these people I see that where sex used to be great or this, you know, really important and and wonderful part of the relationship. And then something changes because you think about all the things that can affect our relationship and our sexual functioning over time. You know, just aging and busyness and children and, you know, and then you get to diseases uh, or surgery or, you know, whatever can happen. Like, Somewhere along the line, people are going to hit bumps in the road. And then they have this devastation. It's like, wait, why can't it be like it used to be? Right. You know, and even then it's like, okay, we can reframe how we think about sex. We can give ourselves permission for a whole other kind of experience. And, oh, Yeah, instead of thinking, oh, it's over. Yeah. Because if you're like, it's great, it's great, it's great. And then, no, not really, not really, not really. And then nothing. Yeah. It can feel like a downfall. Yeah. You know, not like like something that could give you an opportunity to actually cultivate a much stronger. Right intimacy too right because simply talking about something that's so intimate and vulnerable feeling 
I'm sure it ends up being only a little bit about sex. Is that accurate? Yeah, true, true. Some Well, some are more about sex and others are much more complex. But, but now we're back to this idea of why I got in this in the first place about grief and loss. When your sexual functioning changes or your relationship changes, that is loss. You know, yeah. there is grieving that it takes me much longer to get aroused or I don't have that spontaneous desire that I used to have. I mean, yeah. it's okay to grieve that. It's a mm. shift. Ultimately, we make peace with this new normal and reinvent something from here that can be equally wonderful. Yeah. But there is that transition through the loss of that change. Which is so interesting because let's say you start an antidepressant medication or something that physiologically causes a shift in desire. Right. You will probably hear from your doctor and other people like, oh, you might have dry mouth. You might. These are some of the possible things you could have some grief about. Yeah. <laughs> but sex being a quality of life issue is yeah. often missing and having, um, you know, someone, a, a healthcare professional say, you know, your sexuality counts and matters too. And um, because it does, it feels almost like a death sentence when yeah. something changes that much. But knowing that actually that might happen, but that's not the end of it. Right. And I love what you said about it's okay to grieve. Yeah. You don't have to jump straight to recreation. No, no, no. <laughs> Yeah, depending on how it hits you and how big a loss it seems, it needs to be honored as such. Yeah, and it's possible too, right, that your partner or partners could be very okay with you having that time to grieve. Mm -hmm. You know, again, that's something that I've heard from from listeners is just – and who knows? I mean, it may be a very stressful thing for the partner and they just don't know it. Um, but so often it seems like, you know, there's so many great partners out there who they're okay with having, you know, sex less often or whatever, um, but finding that sort of, I don't know if it's a middle ground or just, just even the conversation about are we, how do we feel about yeah. our sex frequency? Yeah. Like so many people never, ever talk about that. Right. Right. Yeah. Do you have any tips for talking about sex, any kind of sex issue? What are some of your top tips for that? Well, the first thing is, I mean, you know, pick your moment. <laughs> you don't do this right when they're heading out the door or, <laughs> or like, you know, you right before the orgasm. Right. You don't want to. <laughs> yeah. And don't I wouldn't talk about it in bed. Yeah. Right. But pick a moment and, and give your partner a little heads up that you want to have a conversation. The biggest thing is to come from a really positive place. You know, I want a relationship to be as good as it can be. And I'm aware uh, and you may be aware that it isn't, you know, that we probably both people know you're struggling with sex. But if it's just you're, you know, you're starting to have a change or something, um, you know, bring that up. But it's because I want us to be as close and connected as we can be. And can we work on this together? Yeah. You know, it's not a place for uh, blaming. I mean, really, there's no place for that anyway. But it's not about pointing fingers or what the other person is doing or pathologizing their level of desire, anything like that. It's I really want this to work between us and I'm willing to look at the stuff that's going on for me and I want to mm. have that conversation. That's so gentle seeming and respectful. I really love that. Just I'm noticing this. Yeah. You know, can we talk about this? Yeah. And it matters to me, you yeah. know. and that Because yeah. actually the person – if a person is talking about low desire, they're saying this matters to me. You know, yeah. sex matters to them, whether it's their desire around it. I mean, sex is not just the act. Right. <laughs> so they have a value system that says this is I, – I think by bringing it up, you're almost saying that you want more desire. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, I have no statistics on this or anything, but I think more often the person with higher desire is bringing it up. 
right? Because they, they're they missing it more actively and the other person's feeling bad. I mean, this is a little bit of a, you know, generalization. You know, again, it's this matters to me and your experience matters to me. I want to know what's going on for you as the lower desire partner. I want to understand what could work better or maybe if there's things you're wanting or things I'm contributing to a problem. I mean, I just want us to have a conversation so we can come at this together and both actually be happy. That is so interesting that you said that. It makes a lot of sense to me that people would make the kind of false presumption, you know, that that because, say, I have a higher sex drive, that therefore we're not having enough sex for me. Right. <laughs> you know, it would be easy to jump there. Yes, very easy. And what's wrong with you that you don't have a libido? Right. Something's wrong. We right. got to take you to a sex therapist because something's wrong with you. And we're going to get that fixed so that I can get the sex I want. That <laughs> message is not going to be very effective. I mean, yeah. it might get people into a therapy office, but that's <laughs> not going to help them really work together. Yeah. We have to understand what's going on for the lower desire partner. Uh, nothing is broken, but there still may be obstacles that we can clear. And then it's about how do we you know, elicit as much drive as they may have. Mm -hmm. And how are they going to participate in things? If they don't both have to be equally aroused. There's other ways to share experiences that you can both feel totally good about, even if you've got different levels of arousal or desire. So to, totally. to make all of those um, options, you know, safe and positive and, um, you know, rewarding for both people, like that's the goal. Yeah. And it's interesting because just as it seems very important to understand why this person is experiencing lower or perceived lack of desire. Also, why is this person having very high desire? Is this the only way they've learned right. to engage in intimacy? Uh, do they believe that this is how I say I love you? Mm -hmm. Is this I'm missing your physical touch? Is it I imagine there are a lot of ways to meet needs once you know what they are. Yeah, yeah. Or is this how I feel good about myself? That mm. this is how I know I'm, you know, important or love. Yeah. You know, and it's the only way I've I've been able to come at that, uh, you know. Yeah. yeah, I love that you said that because I just interviewed um, Don Cummings who wrote a book about um, Pyrone's disease mm. and his experience with really painful erections and, yeah. and bent erections. And as a gay man, he he felt like that was – it was such a part of his identity to be, like, very sexual and to, like, right. have a lot of partners. And that was, like, his confidence – and to be going through this total shift in that, and yeah. he was the high-desired person before, mm -hmm. it, his book is full of grief. Yeah. Full of it. Yeah. But then hope, because yeah. it does, you redefine. Right. And he ended up getting married. Yeah. After, I mean, through that. It, it, it all, it, things seemed to break apart, and then they came together in a more beautiful, powerful way than yeah. it had previously. Yeah. Yeah. Is that a narrative that you see, like people... Um, end up better off than they were even when things were good before. Yeah, I, I think so. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I'll tell clients, it's sort of like redoing your closet. At first, you got to kind of pull everything out. and It's kind of messy. But then you get to you put it back together in a way that works better. You know? Yeah. yeah. You have a touch exercise that people can do. I do. Would you walk us through that? Yeah. Um, I guess I'll describe it first. And then I'll tell you what I think it works for people. Um, so the idea, I call it the giver receiver exercise. And you take turns for 10 minutes each. One person's a giver, one's a receiver. And the receiver is totally in charge. Okay, so the receiver is thinking, first of all, only thinking about themselves. They're trying to access desire for physical touch. And they're thinking, what would be the most pleasing to me in this moment? And then the next moment and the next moment. And they have to 
They have to basically talk through their whole turn because they're totally in charge of their experience. Nothing happens that they don't invite, and they have to give enough instruction and feedback to sort of get exactly what they're thinking of, right? The giver's first job is to say no if they need to say no. Because remember, the receiver is not censoring or thinking, taking care of the giver. So the giver has to do that for themselves. So if it's going to be painful, you know, in some way they don't like, or some other ways can be really negative, they're going to end up resentful or, you know, traumatized or something, right? They need to say no. And then the, the receiver just picks something else. If they just want to say no, okay, this makes me a little anxious. I don't know if this is what I really want. Then I tell them to do it. Okay, that's where they're volunteering to get out of their comfort zone, and there's some work there. Now, if it gets worse, they might need to stop and say no. But that's where they explore, like, what's in my way with this? What do I learn about it? Can I settle that down? You know, what happens in that space? And then if it's easy or neutral, uh, the invitation is to want to give this to the other person, right? The receiver's asking for the thing they want most in the world. Can I just want to give you that? And, and that, this could be sexual touch or non-sexual touch. Or not. Touch. It doesn't matter. Like it's it's or... literally whatever you want most. No judgment about what that is. Like each person's desire is their desire, right? So can I just want to give you this? And that may or may not be easy depending on how loaded things have become. And you use a timer. When the timer goes off, you stop and you switch. Because really I think the biggest thing about this uh, exercise is having no expectations. Mm. There is no goal no agenda. You're not trying to get aroused. You're certainly not trying to get or give an orgasm. It's like, can I just be in this moment of pleasure with you and only think about that? So at the end of the whole thing, you know, then people can kind of look up and think, what do we want to do now? Do we want to do it again? Do we want to have sex? Do we want to go to bed? You know, whatever. And none of those are right or wrong. But I don't want them to worry about that ahead of time. So this exercise gives people a chance. I mean, it, it, it works on so many different levels, but accessing your own sense of desire, thinking about yourself instead of the other person, communicating, you know, what you want, letting go of those expectations or this idea that something is supposed to happen, um, participating from two different levels. Like it's it's not like who goes first sets the tone and the other person has to match it. Like you really each get to want what you want. And it's just these 10 minute sort of laboratory experiments where you gradually can transform your sex life. That's really fascinating. And it sounded so much, the part you said about there's no expectation. Yeah. Sounded the way you talked about sex. Yeah. You can't screw this up. Right, right. And I, I say this to people. It's like, first, first of all, they're going to run into obstacles. You know, whatever's in the way of your sex life will show up in this exercise. So I think of it as we're getting the monsters to come out from under the bed and getting a look at them. So that's okay. You don't have to be discouraged if this seems hard. But you also cannot fail. Like whatever happens, it's just information. And it guides your use of the exercise over time to, you know, really totally transform your sex life. And does that work for – I imagine it's kind of a universally interesting, helpful thing to do. Are there? Is it especially helpful in certain scenarios? Uh, no, I use it with almost everybody because everybody gets different things out of it. They've got different stuff that's sort of the top layer of the onion or, you know, the way their issues show up. I mean, it's so it ends up being unique for every couple even though it's the same instructions. So – and it's the kind of thing that needs a lot of practice. You do this over and over and over again and gradually change things. You know, mm. it takes a while to practice these new skills. Yeah. And the communication piece 
seems really it's big. huge, right? Like, what do you even call this stuff, right? Like, first yeah. of all, people aren't comfortable often talking about sex, about their own body. But even if you were comfortable, what do you call your body parts? What do you call the kinds of touch? Like, it takes a while to develop the language. Yeah, you know, all of it. It just it takes a lot of practice. Yeah, and to ask for what you want mm-hmm. is also a skill that you can use in the rest of your life. Because I imagine if you aren't asking for what you want in bed, there's a so here, pretty good chance here, you're struggling Here's the elsewhere. secret. The rules for this are the rules everywhere, <laughs> all the time, about everything. Ask her what you want. Tolerate a no. Say no if you need to. Have no expectations. I mean, these are the rules. Yeah. For, yeah. It's consent. It's boundary setting. It's knowing what your desires are, respecting other yeah. people's, like – you know, being grateful that the person asked for what they wanted right. or said no. Right, right. you got to tolerate no. That's a huge part of this. You know, tolerate being able to say no and hear no. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your book, ah, well, Sex Without Stress, A Couple's Guide to Overcoming Disappointment, Avoidance, and Pressure. Yeah, so I wrote it, again, for all these couples that are having this phenomenon. Um, so it describes a sexual avoidance cycle. It goes through the myths and expectations that we need to challenge. Then there's a whole part we, we didn't really touch on in the podcast, which are conversations about our family of origin, sex history, and our unique dance around sex that I have with a partner. Like, how do we have sex? How do we avoid sex? You know, so there's tons of questions in there to go over. And then it goes into the touching exercise and all the different ways to use that to practice to actually change. Mm. So rather than just describing the problem, I was trying to give people, like, here's therapy in a book, like a (laughs) do-it-yourself process to hopefully, you know, it's a lot to ask people to do it themselves, but I was trying to give them what they would need to right. do Right. And not everybody either has access or feels comfortable talking to somebody. Oh, yet. yeah. So yeah, as yeah. an entry point even or oh, yeah. something to – I imagine, too, if you have a lot of challenge around speaking about sex with a partner, even saying – what would you think about reading this book together? Right. Or I read this and it really spoke to me. Yeah. What do you think of this chapter? Sometimes having something to refer people to where the focus is not at each other, but they're like, oh, look at this. Right, right. <laughs> can be really helpful. And it's it seems really digestible. Like it's not this big, heavy manual. No, no. Yeah, which is important. People – because, again, the way you're talking about sex, it's light and can be fun. And obviously it gets heavy, but, but the – the goal is to not have that sort of shame and darkness around it. Yeah. I mean, certainly my my I really hold this this stance of you can't fail and there is hope. We can take the pressure off. So no matter how scary and dark it feels right now, it doesn't have to be like that. And I try to have that voice in the book too, to be encouraging. And I know it's a lot to ask people to have these conversations and take these steps and do this weird exercise, but really it can get better. Yeah. And even if your partner's not game yet or you don't have a partner or you want to you, you're the one who feels the need to work on something first, starting with a book or starting with your own exercises, you know, under like looking at these things that you've talked about, some of the reasons you might feel this right. way could be really helpful for the relationship, even if it's not a group yeah. <laughs> activity. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned a few times, which I love, this playground mentality. <laughs> What's a way that we can all be a bit more playful, whether we're struggling a lot or maybe we have a pretty good sex life but i think we can all have desire for that aliveness that you mentioned well i think you know making sure you're having some experiences that don't have an expectation so if you can wrap your mind around this idea of not that sex does not need to end in penetration or orgasm or whatever it is you tend to do if you can just start to have this playtime that's more free and no rush to anything and you can't fail you know if you can really embrace this you know visual of the playground 
I think it could get lighter and more fun pretty quickly. That's so relaxing to hear. I feel yeah. like you could say that to yourself or maybe replay that little clip of what you just said <laughs> anytime, like before you go into an interview or yeah, right, right before you, you know, have a day at work or a date or whatever, like just lowering those expectations because, yeah. again, it's so analogous for our lives to, to have that mentality of this is not something that's pass or fail. Right, right. When everything feels high stakes, you know, that's so much stress. Yeah. Yeah. Tell people where they can learn more about you and learn from you via any of your offerings. Yeah. Well, uh, sexwithoutstress.com has uh, links to the online course I developed to support people in the process of the book. It's got the book, you know, blog posts and videos and stuff like that. So that would be the best place. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Speaking of having more fun in the bedroom, we received an awesome question from a listener named Marge who wrote this. My husband and I have a wonderful sex life. We have sex a couple of times a month, and it's always pleasurable for both of us. I feel very lucky in that way. We're coming up on our 25th wedding anniversary, and I thought it would be fun to plan some sort of sexy adventure. I'm not sure where to start. You could say we're rather vanilla. The most adventurous thing we've done is probably sex in hotel rooms and a time or two I wore sexy lingerie. I would appreciate any suggestions. I love this question, Marge. I'm thrilled for you and your husband. Here is what Dr. Megan Fleming of GreatLifeGreatSex.com had to say. Marge, first of all, I'm so thrilled for this question and I'm so excited for you both. 25 years of marriage and... You know what? The fact that you already have a great sex life, finding pleasure for both of you several times a month, I think is awesome. But you know what? Ordinary absolutely can become extraordinary. So, um, you know, I think, you know, when we say we're vanilla, I always come back to this expression, we know what we know and we don't know what we don't know. And so, wow, what a huge opportunity. The thing that I love most about monogamy is it's the safety net, right? That you can really go out in a sense on that uh, the, the high rope and like really explore and push boundaries, just a sense of like, you know, my expression is red light, yellow light, green light. Like what are your turn-ons? You know, have you even explored fantasy and what turns you both on or reading erotica or just sort of like, just getting a sense of, I really love it when, and thinking about, you know, and what are the things you might want to try? Like, we're all about expanding the menu, right? I often say that when we come into a relationship, everything that works for you both is on the menu. And anything that doesn't really work for you both of you typically tried once falls off. And so it's, you know, I sort of say, try, try again. It's like, here's an amazing opportunity to think about, hmm, what have we not yet tried that we're curious about? Everything from, you know, it just could be, Again, sort of setting the mood and the atmosphere, the lighting, the music, again, potentially putting on that lingerie to, you know, I have to talk about putting on a blindfold because when you do, um, you cut off one of your five senses and it heightens the others. I'm a big fan and not to promote Jimmy B. Jane per se, but their um, massage is a candle that when you light it, it's aromatherapy, but also has this amazing little spout and you pour it. And so it becomes massage oil. So sensual touching and massage. And even with that one, there's the option for temperature play. Um, you know, it's like new sexual positions. Uh, angles, of course, I think make everything better. And just like, I don't know, the biggest sexual thing we say is your mind. So... Here's an opportunity, I think, to, first of all, blow your husband's mind by just saying, 
it really turns me on when, or I'm so excited to explore this with you. Just the fact that you have your sexy imagination running and you're curious to see what's going to come next and you're open to those possibilities. In my mind, that is everything. And you know me, as always, I'm so excited to hear how it goes. So please do follow up and let us know what things you next try. Just knowing the limit is only by your imagination. So have fun, play, explore, be curious, and absolutely let us know how it goes. Indeed. We know what we know, and we don't know what we don't know. I also second all of Megan's ideas for spicing things up. Anyone seeking more bedroom adventures might also benefit from the yes, no, maybe list I included in Girl Boner Journal. It has a whole range of ideas to consider and a worksheet format, which makes it really simple. Marge, I hope you and your husband have the best anniversary full of pleasure and connection and celebration. If you're enjoying Girl Boner Radio, please hit subscribe wherever you're listening and give us a rating or review if you haven't. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week. Girl Boner Radio is owned, operated, and executively produced by me, August McLaughlin, with technical producer and audio extraordinaire, Mackenzie Mazel, as part of the Period Podcast Network, an affiliate of Starburns Industries. Learn more about the Girl Boner podcast brand movement and book series at girlboner.org and more about Period at periodnetwork.com.